1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast. A podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Setia fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you once again for listening. We're back to doing two episodes a week after we gave ourselves a bit of a break with only one episode last week. We're also going to go back to our busy schedule format, which means on the first episode of the week, we'll cover all the action from the weekend, and on the second episode of the week, we'll cover the news, and on both episodes, we'll have match reviews and previews. Today, we'll start with a very thorough review of Napoli's 3-1 loss to Milan on Sunday. Then in part two, we'll recap the rest of the action from match day eight, and in part three, we'll preview our upcoming Europa League match against Rijeka on Thursday, so let's start with the highlights from the Milan match.
0: So, Napoli against Milan. A South v North fixture. Exuding an aura of greatness. Came on very early on in the game, didn't he? As a substitute and dominated the midfield there. He was excellent. Teo Hernandez. What a wonderful header that is! And Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Oh, the inspiration! a goal in each of his first six league games this season. Now it's Mertens taking this uh, corner. lash. oh, cleared away, back. Yoko initially, then Di Lorenzo off the frame. Tipped over by Donnarumma in the end, from Lozano. I wonder what Victor Osimhen is making of this uh, Napoli performance so far. One goal in it at half-time. Well, on the evidence of the first 45 minutes, the second could be an enthralling watch. Jalan Look at the running here of Rebic. With Di Lorenzo out of position, Manalès trying to cover. Ibrahimović for two. What an outstanding season he's having. Is Mario Rui. And Mertens! To pull one back here for Napoli and give them hope in the last half an hour. Teo Hernandez, away from one, and now head down, pushing, probing. Bacchio goes off. He said he was walking a tightrope when he got that booking in the first half. He cannot make the challenge there. He was never going to win the ball. Heading into the fifth and final added minute. And Milan still to put this game beyond any doubt, Hauger with a chance here and Hauger has wrapped it up with his first Serie A goal. The Norwegian in the 95th minute, sending Milan back to the top of the tree. It's been a spirited display by Napoli. Mario Rui with the in-swinger.
1: Milan's first league win here for a decade. So, as you heard, we lost this match three to one. This was a tough loss. I think the disappointment and the stress of playing from behind made it feel like we played worse than we actually did. There's a lot I want to talk about, including the three distinct phases of the match, the Milan goals, what Milan did well, and the rumors that Gattuso threatened to quit after the match. But first, let's review the starting lineups. We had only one variance in our predicted 11 for Milan. Gijo Donnarumma started in goal. Simon Kier and Alessio Romagnoli started at centre-back. Teo Hernandez played at left-back and Davide Calabria played at right-back. Frank Kessie and Ismael Benessera started in the double pivot. The one variance we had was on the left wing with Rafael Leao injured. We had narrowed it down to either Brahim Diaz or Ante Rebic, but we picked wrong as Rebic got the nod. Alexis Salamaker started on the right. And Hakan Chalanoglu started in the 10th spot behind Zlatan Ibrahimović. Gattuso also lined up in the 4-2-3-1, and like with Milan, we had only one discrepancy in our predicted 11. Alex Meret started in goal, Kaladuk Libeli and Kostas Manolas started at center back. With Elsie Sai in quarantine, Mario Rui started on the left, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started on the right. Timoy Bakayoko and Fabian Ruiz started in the double pivot. The front four is where things were a little bit different. We had Lorenzo Insignia on the left, Matteo Politano on the right, and Dries Mertens in the 10th spot behind Andrea Petagna. Insignia started on the left, but Chuki Lozzano started on the right, and Matteo Politano played in the 10th spot behind Dries Mertens. I thought Gattuso got it wrong and that Petagna should have been in the starting 11. I know that's easy to say after the match, but I did say this to a few people before the match started as well. I also appreciate that had the result been different, we'd probably be calling Gattuso a genius. I think it would have made more sense to experiment with new combinations midweek against Rijeka than in such a big match in Serie A. Gattuso was clearly going for pace over size, and it nearly worked early on as Politano turned on the Jets and blew past Romagnoli, but Kair made a good interception. Politano was actually one of the few bright spots for Napoli in this match. He ran his ass off both in the attack and tracking back. He outmuscled Milan players to win possession, and he won corner kicks. He also had a few shot attempts that narrowly missed the goal. I was most impressed with the fire that he played with. He drew a yellow card on Rebic in the 58th minute and looked like he was ready to scrap. That passion was missing from a lot of players in this match. When you're down 2-0, you should be pissed off. However, tactically, I think Catuzzo got it wrong. Even though Politano was lined up in the middle, he constantly drifted out to the right wing, so Lozano had to play more centrally and we know from experience that Lozano struggles in the middle. That was the risk of playing with three wingers in the front four. I don't know if Lozano was covering for Politano or if Gattuso made a change in-game, but Lozano ended up in the middle regardless, and if you're going to play him there, you're way better off having Petagna as the striker with Mertens behind him. Petagna did eventually come on after Politano requested a change, so hopefully that was just fatigue and not an injury. Now, I mentioned at the start of this review that I think this loss felt a lot worse than it was. For me, this match had three distinct phases. The first phase was the opening 20 minutes. What stood out to me the most in this phase was that Napoli were forcing their passes and conceding possession way too cheaply and very often in our own end. I counted at least 6 turnovers from 5 different players in the opening 20 minutes including Manolas, Mertens, Di Lorenzo, Bakayoko, and Fabian. That's why the majority of Milan's chances came in the first 20 minute period, including the first Ibrahimović goal, which we'll talk about in a bit. After that goal, Napoli woke up and started playing. The turnover stopped, and other than the goals, Milan really didn't have many scoring opportunities. In fact, there was only one other chance late in the match where Medaic played a ball straight to Milan and ended up having to bail himself out with a good save. We had our best sequence during this middle phase, around the half hour point. First, Donnarumma showed why he's the Azzurri number 1, making just a ridiculous save on Mertens. Donnarumma is 6 feet 5 inches tall and he was fully stretched to make that save. Then Napoli had 3 excellent chances on the ensuing corner kick. First, Bakayoko had an attempt that was either stopped by Donnarumma or blocked by Rebic. It was hard to tell which one. Then Di Lorenzo smashed his volley straight into the bar, which was unfortunate, but doesn't suddenly make him a bad player. I hate when Napoli fans turn on a player the moment they miss a chance or make a mistake. And finally, Lozano hit his shot into the ground and up, but Donnarumma managed to tip the shot over the bar. That was obviously a key moment of the match, and after that sequence, you definitely felt like it was going to be one of those nights where the bounces just don't go our way. Now, like I said, that sequence happened around the half hour mark, and at the half, I saw a lot of fans on social media and in various chat groups saying that we need to make changes at the half, Zielinski needs to come on, petania needs to come on, Elmes needs to come on, And then when Gattuso didn't make any changes, they all turned on him. I thought that was just an outrageous overreaction. And like I said, a lot of people were focused on the bad start and they discredited anything positive we did. But the reality is that we dominated the play for the last 25 minutes of the half. So there was no need to make any changes yet. That play carried over into the start of the second half. Now, one thing that I will agree with the critics on is that possession is a meaningless stat. If you're only passing the ball horizontally and backwards and not actually creating any chances... In this match, the possession stat simply tells you that after taking the lead, Milan's approach was to sit back, defend, and counter. That was a pretty reasonable approach to take, playing at the San Paolo where Milan had not won in 10 years which interestingly enough, was when Ibra was at Milan the first time. Sure enough, Milan got one chance and they took it, I'll break that down in a second shortly after the goal Gatuzo brought in Zelinski, which again i was fine with it was still relatively early for Gatuzo, but obviously we needed to make a change down two goals and that change was effective Zelinski plays a more direct vertical style which seemed to work well against milan's defense mertens pulled one back which despite the loss was good to see again going back to all the critics mertens was one of the players being attacked i saw a lot of people saying he cannot be a starter anymore but at the half a player like mertens who still has fuel in the tank is still our best option to score and that's why Gattuso left him in and it turned out to be the right decision. Unfortunately, just after we got back into the match, Bakayoko picked up a second yellow for a foul he committed on Teo Hernandez. Now, normally I'm very objective, but from the various Milan and Napoli people that I follow, I can tell you that my take is going to seem like a very heavy Napoli bias. Milan fans obviously agreed with the decision and in fact they felt like Bakayoko should have picked up a second yellow sooner but let's start with the first yellow which he picked up in the 16th minute. The Milan take was that Bakayoko put his studs into Salamakras which he did there's no denying that and some felt that this was possibly even a red card offense. The Napoli take which of course is the one that I subscribe to is that Bakayoko played the pass so he's in possession and Salamaker stuck his foot into the path of Bakayoko so he couldn't avoid landing on Salamaker's. Now, you could say that whether the contact was incidental or not, Bakayoko still put his studs into Salamaker's foot, and therefore it is still a yellow. That's fine, I get the argument, but if you're going to concede that, then you also have to be willing to say that Zlatan should have been shown a yellow for his elbow to the face of Koulibaly because that was incidental contact as well. And those Milan fans who think Bakayoko should have gotten a straight red on the first foul... Can't criticize the Napoli fans who felt Ibrahimovic should have been shown a straight red for his elbow. The second yellow came in the 65th minute, and again, I'm a little bit biased here. I think this foul looked worse in real time than it did on the replay, and I think Teo sold it well. By the way, Teo has a bit of a reputation for doing that. He did it to us in the second meeting last season where he and Di Lorenzo went up for a 50-50 ball. Teo screamed and rolled around in pain and Di Lorenzo was shown a yellow card. And then he tried to do it again in the first half of this match for a 50-50 ball with Lozano. But back to this play, I think there was some contact and therefore there was a foul. But in my opinion, that was not a yellow card offense. What I will admit is that Bakayoko was a repeat offender and that he appeared to be targeting Teo. Yellow cards can be given to a player who has committed multiple fouls, or when a team repeatedly fouls the same player, even if none of the individual fouls was a yellow card offense and Bakayoko is guilty of both of them here. Now that's where I need to look to Gatsuzo again. There were clear warning signs that Bakayoko was going to get a second yellow and he either ignored them or felt it was worth the risk and that plan backfired. So that brings us to the final phase of the match, which was the final 25 plus minutes with Napoli playing down a man. You would think that being down a man, we would have struggled and faded, but instead it seemed like everyone stepped up their game. I mentioned Zielinski, but I thought he and Petania, who came on in the 68th minute, gave us structure and fresh legs. Patania had a couple of decent efforts on target, but wasn't good enough to beat Donnarumma. I also thought Insigne and Mario Rui finally woke up for this portion of the match neither were involved much in the first two thirds of the match. I don't wish injuries on any player but the loss of Ibrahimovic certainly helped as well. Hopefully Ibrahimovic can recover from that injury and return soon because even though he beat us, I think he's very good for Serie a as a whole. Gattuso replaced Fabian with Elmas very late in the match. Elmas only played the 5 minutes of added time which I thought was another error by Gattuso. It was just far too late for Elmas to have a meaningful impact on the match. Fabian had that weak effort with his off foot, but wasn't really creating anything, and our guys did a lot of running, especially after the Bakayoko red card. Okay, next, let's talk about the goals. Our defenders had a rough night, but again, I don't think it was as bad as some people were making it out to be. Surprisingly, of the back four, Mario Rui was victimized the least. One thing I got wrong in our preview was that I gave Koulibaly the advantage in that battle with Ibrahimovic, Kulibali got outmuscled and outsmarted by Ibrahimovic on two goals, not to mention that elbow to the face. On the first goal, it would be easy to simply blame Kulibali for getting beat, which is true, he did get beat, I won't deny that. Kulibali was waiting for the ball and Ibrahimovic attacked it, but others were at fault as well. Both Chalinoglu and Teo Hernandez were wide open on the two passes before the goal. This play started with a throw-in, which Teo took to Kessi. Kessi played the ball back to Romagnoli and he gave it to Benissaire. Teo stayed out wide. Lozano was marking him, but for some reason when Benissaire stepped up, Lozano left Tail to close him down despite Politano and Bakayoko already being there. That left Tail completely unmarked on the left wing, and Rebic found him. Rebic could just as well have played the ball to Chalonoglu, who was also wide open. He set himself up between the lines, specifically between Manolas and Fabian. And then you have to give Teo and Ibra credit. The cross and the header were both world class. Milan's second goal was scored on the counterattack in the second half. This play started with a long ball for Di Lorenzo. He and Politano got their wires crossed up. Di Lorenzo was expecting Politano to pull up, so he chested the ball down. But Politano continued his run. That started the counterattack. And I get that sometimes players get crossed up, but what was really frustrating on this play... And something that you know infuriated Gattuso is that both players threw their hands up as if to blame the other instead of sprinting back. This was exactly one of the concerns I raised in our preview, that we need to be careful not to let Di Lorenzo get caught out, because we always seem to get burned when he does. Once again, Koulibaly could have done better on this play. He seemed like he wasn't sure whether to mark the man or to play the offside, which ultimately allowed Ibrahimovic to get in behind him. Mario Rui tried to help, but he doesn't have the size or strength to defend Zlatan. And once again you have to give Milan credit, Celanoglu squeezed his pass through to Rebic, Rebic did well to slow down Manolas with the step over, again I saw a lot of people hating on Manolas for getting beat 1v1 by Rebic, that's a very difficult position for a centre back to be in, when you're tracking back it's easy to get caught flat footed, so I don't put too much blame on Manolas for that goal. The cross from Rebic was excellent as well, and Ibrahimović made a very smart run to stay onside, and even at 39, he still has incredible athleticism. We saw the play where he controlled the ball with a karate-style kick, which is a patented Ibrahimović play, only he does that. We also saw the athleticism on this goal, with Ibrahimović finishing with his knee. Finally, on the third goal, Di Lorenzo once again conceded possession, Again, we paid for it and again Milan made a great play, this time it was from Jens Peter Haug. He completely undressed Manolas before beating Meret who got a hand on the ball, but not enough to keep it out. Haug became only the second Norwegian player in history to score for Milan. Credit to Ben Asser. he played an excellent ball to Haug on that goal which sealed the win. To be honest though, I think the game was already over at that point, we had nothing left in the tank, but that was certainly the final nail in the coffin. So to summarize, Milan took their chances and we didn't. Milan had only 6 quality chances in the match, mostly in the first 20 minutes, but they scored 3 of them. Our defending, particularly on the counterattack, was not very good, and we lacked creativity in the midfield. We did well progressing the ball forward, but the final decisive ball was missing. Gattuso made 3 errors, in my opinion. He started a very small front four, including 3 wingers, which didn't work, though again, if it did work, we'd be singing his praises. He left Bakayoko in too long, when he was clearly at risk of picking up a second yellow, and he brought Elmas in too late to make a difference. Now, you have to give Milan a ton of credit for how they played, whether it was Pioli or Bonera or even Ibrahimovic, Milan had a plan and they executed it. They recognized that we had a very small attack, so they pressed our defenders to play long balls, knowing we didn't have a target man on the pitch, and they pressed Koulibaly a little bit tighter, inviting us to play short passes to Manolas instead. Once Milan got the lead, they sat back and protected it, which is a perfectly reasonable approach playing at a stadium where they hadn't won in 10 years, and it also showed their respect for Napoli's quality. Pretty much everyone on their team played well, not just Ibrahimovic. Donnarumma made the big saves when he needed to. Calabria and Salamacras completely shut down Insigne and Mario Rui. Once again, Teo Hernandez was key to their attack, and I don't even think he's as bad of a defender as some make him out to be. I also don't think Alessio Romagnoli is as bad as some Milanisti think, Though I think that was a minority. Frank Kessi was a rock in the midfield again, and though they didn't have much of the ball, Benacer and Chalonoglu made some very important passes in the build up to the goals. The last thing I want to talk about is the post match conference and all of the nonsense about Gattuso threatening to leave, which were rumors started by Corriere de los Sport. Let me start with his post match comments because I think once you hear those, you'll appreciate that he has no intention of going anywhere. As always, Gattuso took responsibility for the loss. He said we can make individual mistakes, but we played a good game, we hurt ourselves, we did everything, I'm responsible. When we have an important game, something always happens, we have to raise the bar. He added, it's my problem, I'm the one who still can't get the games to be interpreted in a certain way, it's no coincidence that we make mistakes. First of all, I have to take responsibility. Gatuzo even took responsibility when he was asked about Ibrahimovic's elbow, he did say it looked like a shot by Mike Tyson, but then quickly turned it back on us, saying he doesn't want to talk about that, the fault is ours. He also talked about the player's mentality, which I know a lot of fans are tired of hearing about, but that clearly remains an issue. Gatuzo said, we have to stay on track and stay sharp, we can't always think we lost because we were unlucky. He said he's been fighting this for months, and he sees attitudes he doesn't like. He said we have to pause and work as a team we won when we played with a knife between our teeth and when we run when we don't do this the results don't come he said mentality has been a problem for a long time but again he said that's his fault so when i hear those comments and how many times gattuso took responsibility for the loss i find it hard to believe that gattuso threatened to quit what i didn't like was that the club felt the need to address this with a tweet from the club's official twitter account saying that the reports of a dispute between the players and the coach were completely invented and baseless. Now, as I said after the Sassuolo loss, one of the nice things about the compressed schedule is there isn't much time to dwell on losses. The team has to immediately focus on the next match, which should actually help with mentality. Our next match is the return fixture against Riak in the Europa League, which should be an easy win, but right now no matches appear to be easy. We'll preview that on part 3. But first, we'll recap all the other action over the weekend in part two. let's cover the rest of the action from the weekend. You probably noticed that players were wearing red marks on their faces. That was a weekend campaign to raise awareness of domestic violence issues in Italy. Unfortunately, the league didn't do a great job of marketing this campaign. Other than a sentence or two from the commentator at the start of each match, just before the opening whistle, there wasn't anything at all. So if you missed the opening minutes, you would have had no idea. The other theme of the weekend was that the Stars came out to play. You'll see that as we work through all of the matches. I want to start with Sassuolo's 2-0 win over Hellas Verona, extending their unbeaten streak. This was an intriguing matchup between two of Serie A's brightest coaches in Ivan Juric and Roberto De Zerbi. It was a meaningful game for both sides. Verona were off to their best start in 15 seasons, and with a win, would move into a Champions League spot. Meanwhile, a Sassuolo win would put them in first place, with Milan still to play later in the day. Sassuolo did just that, winning 2-0 on goals from Jeremy Boga and Domenico Berardi, but I don't think the score is an accurate depiction of how this game actually went. Despite dealing with mounting injuries and COVID cases, I thought Verona were the better team for long stretches of the match. Samuel Di Carmine made his first start since picking up an injury against Udinese on match day 2, but with one striker returning, another was lost due to injury. Nikola Kalinic was forced to leave the pitch in the 39th minute, so Ebrie McCauley came off the bench to replace him. Verona's captain Miguel Veloso also returned from injury. He replaced Ivan Ilic in the 68th minute. Both Ilic and Veloso came very close to scoring in this one. In the opening minutes of the match, Ilic completed a nice interplay with Kalinic and Pavel Davidovic, but his shot struck the upright. Veloso's chance came from a free kick, which he put over the wall to beat Andrea Concili, but not his post. Verona hit the crossbar twice as well in the 26th minute, Federico Di Marcos' cross glanced off the bar and stayed out. Then on the final play of the match, 17-year-old Destiny Udoji nearly scored his first goal but his header hit the bar. Concili made an excellent save on Eddie Salcedo in the 85th minute as well so Verona had their chances but just couldn't convert. Sassuolo on the other hand didn't have too many chances but they made the most of them when they did. With Chicho Caputo out of the squad, Boga and Berardi were called upon to score and they both delivered. Boga scored a beautiful goal at the end of the first half. Berardi spotted him on the left wing. Boga received the pass really well and then his finish was even better, curling it into the top corner at the far post. Boga returned the favor in the second half, picking up Berardi in the middle of the field on the counterattack. Verona, who are arguably the best defensive team in the league, gave Berardi way too much space to run into. At first, I thought Silvestri made a mess of the shot, but on the replay, it appeared the shot took a slight deflection off Di Marco. This was not a typical Sassuolo match. Other than the goals, they didn't have too many serious attempts at goal. With the lead, they were content to sit back and defend in the 4-5-1, and they got the result. I think I finally need to start giving Verona credit, they looked very good in this match, even Juric continues to do amazing things for them, and I hope he doesn't get lured away by a bigger club because I think he's single-handedly keeping this club up. With the win, Sassuolo momentarily moved up to the top of the table, but after the Milan win we covered in Part 2, Sassuolo dropped back down to 2nd. Next, let's talk about Roma, who moved into 3rd with a 3-0 win over Parma on goals from Borja Mayrao and a brace from Henrik Mkhitaryan. Roma were without Chris Smalling for this match after he contracted food poisoning, but it didn't matter. Roma had very little defending to do all match. This was a dominant performance from start to finish. All three goals were scored in the first half. Majoral scored his first Serie A goal for Roma, with his other two goals scored in the Europa League. The through ball from Spinazzola on that play was just exquisite. Mkhitaryan scored his fourth and fifth goals for Roma in their last two Serie A matches, and his sixth in their last three in all competitions. The first was an absolute screamer from well outside the box and was easily the goal of the week. Both Spinazzola and Mayoral were involved in that goal as well. Spinazzola played the pass before the pass, and then Mayoral managed to lay the ball off while being fouled. Mkhitaryan's second and Roma's third came just before the break, Rick Karsdor played an excellent ball in toward the back post, and Jordan Osorio played Mkhitaryan onside. Parma are a counter-attacking team so it was no surprise to see Roma control the run of play but that didn't even change after Roma scored. The second half felt like a formality. It seemed like Roma took their foot off the gas, even though they still had a number of chances, including a Spinazzola effort that Sepp just got enough of to bounce it into the bar. Jan Caramo had Parma's only decent attempt at goal in the 66th minute, but Mirante made a fairly straightforward save. And just to make matters worse, Giuseppe Petzella was removed late in the match with what appeared to be a pretty painful muscle injury. So, Parma are in really bad shape. Juventus beat Cagliari 2-0 on a brace by who else? Cristiano Ronaldo. Prior to the match, Pirlo said the adaptation period is over and that during this stretch of matches from now until Christmas, Juventus need to treat every match as a final. Cagliari were without Naitan Nandes and Diego Godin, so João Pedro lined up as a trequartista. For Juve, Matthias De Ligt made his first start of the season after having his shoulder surgically repaired. That was massive for Juve, with Chiellini and Bonucci still injured. De Ligt was paired with Mehdi Demirel, who was amongst the many Juve players that had excellent matches. He even came close to scoring in the second half, but his header in the 54th minute hit the bar and stayed out. Gigi Buffon got the start in goal 25 years after making his debut. According to the broadcast, 468 players have taken part in a Serie A match this season, and 172 of them were not born when Buffon made his Serie A debut for Parma against Milan. Cagliari started out quickly, but it took only a few minutes for Juve to settle down, and then the Bianconeri dominated the rest of the match. This was easily Juve's best performance, at least since their opening match against Sampdoria, and it could have been even better than that. Pirlo should send Roberto Mancini a thank you card for fixing Bernardeschi, though you do have to give Pirlo credit for playing him on the left side instead of on the right. He finished a beautiful team play including some really nice one-touch passes between Rabiot and Ronaldo before Morata picked up Bernardeschi on the wing, but a Juve match would not be complete without a goal being ruled out for a Morata offside, which is exactly what was called. I'm sure Alessio Cranio was relieved by that decision because he really should have done better on that shot. I thought Artur had his best performance in a Juventus jersey, and Rabiot continued his strong start to the season. If I had to nitpick, the one concern that remains for Juventini is the heavy reliance on Ronaldo for goals. I honestly don't know if anyone would have scored if Ronaldo was not playing. Juventus dominated the match, but didn't actually have that many scoring opportunities, and we saw how Juventus struggled to score when Ronaldo was not in the squad. Paulo Dybala played the final 20 minutes of the match, but wasn't able to score. That's another concern that remains, which is how to get Bala and Federico Chiesa into the starting 11, but that's a good problem to have, especially with such a busy schedule this season. So despite being far from their best, Juventus moved up to 4th in the table with the win. Meanwhile, Inter came from behind to beat Torino 4-2 to move up to 5th, so Roma, Juve, and Inter all hopped over Napoli in the table, Inter's forward scored all four goals with Romelu Lukaku scoring two and Alexis Sanchez and Lautaro Martinez scoring one each. Simone Zaza and Christian Ansaldi scored for Torino. Inter were without Marcelo Brozovic and Alexander Kolarov who tested positive for COVID. Torino were also hit with the virus. Marco Giampaolo and four players were not available for this match. And to make matters worse, Andrea Bellotti was a last-minute removal. This was a typical Pazza-Inter match. Inter had most of the ball in the first half but still occasionally got exposed. In fact, it was Torino that had the two best chances of the half, but Handanovic stood strong to stop Zaza on the first one. The second one came in at a time, Alexis Sanchez conceded possession in a dangerous area and Torino made him play. Full credit to Torino though, this was a beautiful goal. Linetti, Bonazzoli and Miete made three quick passes including a backheel flick from Miete to spot Zaza and then his finish was excellent. Bonazzoli was only on the field because just minutes prior to the goal, Simone Verdi had to be removed with an injury. Salvatore Sirigu made a similar save on Lukaku prior to the Torino chance, but Lukaku was called offside. As is often the case with the Inter games, the second half was far more eventful. First in the 58th minute, Wilfried Songo appeared to be fouled by Ashley Young in the box, but the foul wasn't given. Moments later, the match official Federico Lapena was called to the VAR to review the play and he correctly awarded the penalty. We often call out the VAR for its limitations, like on tight offside calls, but we should also give it credit when it gets decisions right, which it definitely did on this play. I don't know what Ashley Young was thinking going into the tackle with his boots so high, especially in the box. It was a very risky play and he got burned for it. With Belotti out then, Saldi stepped up and converted the penalty. From that point on, it was all Inter with Lukaku leading the charge. He was involved in all four of Inter's goals. The first came immediately from the kickoff after Torino's second goal. I don't think Torino touched the ball before Lukaku hit the bar and Sanchez put away the rebound. Lukaku hit the upright again in the 65th minute, but a minute later he got his goal. Lukaku scored Inter's third goal in 20 minutes after Inter were rewarded a penalty by the bar. The foul by and Kulu on Ashraf Hakimi was quite similar to the one by Ashley Young on Singo. So I don't think Torino fans could complain much about it. And then Lukaku assisted Lautaro Martinez to put the match away. Even Perisic, who replaced Ashley Young in the 74th minute, played a gorgeous long ball to Lukaku on the wing to start that attack. So this was another Patsa Inter win, but after only one win in their last eight matches in all competitions, I'm sure Interisti were happy regardless of how this win came for Torino, this was another tough loss. They just can't seem to finish their matches off. Giampaolo is getting a lot of hate, but I think the players deserve their share of the blame as well. Moving on to Atalanta, they played Spezia on Saturday. Atalanta had only 4 players in their starting 11 from their last match against Inter. Pierluigi Golini returned in goal and Martin Roon and Robin Gozins returned from injury, but Brad City, Luis Muriel, and Hans Hatteborg were all left out of the squad. This match finished in a 0-0 draw. Pretty much this entire match was played in transition, which left plenty of space for both teams to attack, which makes it surprising that neither team scored. Diego Farias posed a lot of problems for Atalanta's backline early in the match. He had two excellent chances in the opening 6 minutes. Both times he cut in from the left side onto his preferred right foot. His first effort hit the upright and his second went wide of the goal. Atalanta hit the upright in the first half as well. Once again, it was Duvan Zapata who's been really unlucky this season. I've lost count of how many times he's hit the post. I was very surprised to see Giampiero Gasparini replace Papu Gomez with Mario Pazilic at the break. I know Atalanta play midweek in the Champions League, but at nil-nil, I thought that was pretty disrespectful of Spezia, but it turned out that Gasparini made the right decision. Paslich had 3 or 4 excellent scoring opportunities in the second half, and had he converted just one of them, Atalanta would have won this match. Gozens thought he scored in his first game back, but his goal was ruled offside. Sam Lammers also came close only moments after replacing Duvan Zapata, but even Providel made an excellent save on him. I was on the Culture Connection podcast with Alex Dono and Jerry Mancini a couple weeks ago, and we talked about Atalanta's struggles heading into the Inter match. One of the points I made there was that early in the season, Atalanta were winning matches not because they were such a good team, But rather, they were winning because Atalanta's finishing was so clinical and because Papu Gomez was saving them. Torino held their own in the opening match of the season and you could argue that Lazio were the better team in that match, but again, you credit Atalanta for being so decisive. After beating Cagliari, which was a closer match than the scoreline would suggest, Atalanta's struggles began. With Duvan rather unlucky, Papu going cold, and Josip Ilicic looking like a shadow of his former self, the goals began to dry up. After scoring 98 goals in Serie A last season and starting this season with 13 goals in 3 matches, Atalanta have scored only 5 goals in their last 5 matches. Now, I shouldn't get too far ahead of myself. Atalanta do have a tendency to start slowly. Connor Clancy from the Forza Italia podcast posted an interesting tweet. He tweeted Atalanta's record after 8 matches over the last 4 campaigns. At this point in 2016-17, Atalanta had 10 points with a goal differential of minus 2 and they finished in 4th. In 1718, they had 9 points with a gold differential of 0 and they finished 7th. In 1819, they had only 6 points with a gold differential of minus 2 and somehow finished in 3rd. And last season, they had 17 points with a gold differential of plus 8 and they finished in 3rd again. So his point is with 14 points and a gold differential of plus 4 at the moment, we probably shouldn't rule out Atalanta. With the draw, Atalanta still pulled level with Napoli on 14 points. Lazio also pulled level with their 2-0 victory over Crotone in what was the first match of the round. Chiro Immobile and Yaquin Correa scored the goals. This match was played in the pouring rain. There were puddles all over the pitch that often completely stopped the ball. But if the games are not being postponed for COVID, then you can be sure that they won't be postponed because of rain. The rain did subside a bit at the start of the second half and much of the standing water drained, which made the pitch more playable. But midway through the half, the skies opened up again. Other than Sergei Milinkovic-Savic, who was out because of COVID, Lazio fielded one of their strongest sides in a long time. I don't remember the last time Chido Immobile, Luis Alberto, Manuel Lazzari, and Lucas Leiva were all in the squad together. There was plenty of Lazio drama heading into this match. First, you had Luis Alberto's public complaint about Lazio buying a team plane, but not paying players' wages, and Claudio Lotito's suggestion that Alberto should be frozen out of the squad. That obviously cast some doubt on whether Alberto would play in this match, but he did start. Then you had Chiro Immobile take to social media to call out the media for constantly attacking him. Sports media set was the latest to suggest that Immobile is somehow causing these positive tests, which is kind of ridiculous. None of the off-the-field drama affected either player's performance on the pitch. Immobile scored a fantastic header on a gorgeous cross from Marco Parolo, which was even more impressive in the rain. With that goal, Immobile tied Giuseppe Signori for second most goals scored for Lazio of all time. Immobile also assisted on Lazio's second goal, which was Yaquin Correa's first in Serie A this season. He beat Cordaz from a pretty tight angle. Cordaz probably should have done better, but he did make a number of saves to keep Crotone alive in this match, so it's hard to put too much blame on him. Other than a semi-chance in the 14th minute, Crotone didn't really create much. They remain the only team in the league without a win. Meanwhile, Lazio had one of their better performances of the season despite the weather, all four of those guys I mentioned played very well, Francesco Ecerbi is playing arguably the best football of his career, and Marco Parolo and John Daniel Akpa Akpro did an admirable job covering for Milinkovic-Savic. The other three matches weren't exactly barn burners, Benevento beat Fiorentina 1-0 on a goal from Riccardo Improta, this was Cesare Prandelli's first game in charge since 2010 and it was a very disappointing second debut. Prandelli had this entire squad to train during the international break because the local authorities banned Fiorentina from leaving the country. This wasn't a particularly entertaining match. The first half was scrappy, there were lots of fouls, neither side created many chances and the ball spent most of the time in the middle of the pitch. I thought Pipo Inzaghi outcoached Prandelli in this one, Improta got his first start in the midfield and at the half, Inzaghi replaced Marco Sao with Roberto Insignia on the right wing and sure enough, those two combined for the only goal of the match. That was actually the first shot on target for either side, which was in the 52nd minute. Inzaghi also started Gabriele Moncini at striker for the first time since match day 2. That meant Gianluca Lapadula was fresh when he came off the bench and he nearly doubled Benevento's lead, but Dragowski made an excellent save on his free kick. Fiorentina's best chance came in the 86th minute when Dušan back-heeled Polirola's cross from close range, but Lorenzo Montipo made a great reflex save to keep it out. With the loss, Fiorentina have only 8 points through 8 matches and currently sit in 15th place. To make matters worse, Frank Ribery left this match with an injury. There's no word yet on the extent of the injury. He tweeted after the match that he would be back as soon as possible. Udinese defeated Genoa 1-0 on a goal from Rodrigo De Paul. He was the man of the match once again. De Paul just loves playing against Genoa. That was De Paul's first goal from open play this season. It was also only the second goal that Udinese have scored from outside of the box. Marvin Ziegler did really well to win the header that started the attack, and Stefano Okaka made a good play to protect the ball before playing the pass before the pass, but the finish from Paul into the side netting was really, really nice. Paul nearly added a second in the 85th minute, but his free kick struck the top of the bar and bounced out of play. Other than an open header from Mattia Bani in the 22nd minute, Genoa didn't do too much offensively until the final 10 minutes of the match. Once again, it was Bani who came close, but Juan Musso made an extraordinary save to protect the lead. Then on the ensuing throw-in, Gianluca Scamaca scored the equalizer, but after a bar review, he was ruled offside. His foot was just slightly behind the back line. Then just before the final whistle, Mattia Perin was shown a straight red for coming out and fouling Strieger Larsen, who had a clear break. That was a really foolish move by Perrine. the match was pretty much over at that point but now he'll miss Genoa's next match which is an important one, they're playing against a Parma side that they could be competing with for survival. Finally, because Genoa had already used all 5 of their substitutes, Eduardo Goldeniga had to put on the gloves and keeper kit for the final few seconds of the match. Rolando Moran will be very disappointed with this result. His side had so many corner kicks, especially in the first half, and did next to nothing with them. Almost everyone was played to the near post and cleared out. This was a big win for Udinese over a Genoa side that they are competing with for survival. Finally, Bologna came from behind to beat Sampdoria 2-1. Morton Thorsby scored Sampdoria's only goal, while Bologna scored an own goal and Ricardo Orsoli scored the other. The first two goals of the match came from corner kicks. For Sampdoria, Thorsby scored a stunning header from a set piece. He did a great job attacking the ball, it was straight at Lukas Skorupski, but the header had so much power that he just couldn't keep it out. Mikhail Damsgaard did really well in the build-up to pick out Antonio Kendreva on the right side, which led to that corner kick. Bologna were really lucky to get the equalizer, that was just a horrible own goal by Vasco Regini. He had no one around him, no one pressuring him, and perhaps lost his position because he tapped the ball straight into his own net. Orsolini scored the second on a lovely ball from Musabera to the far post. When Palacio, Orsolini, Barrow, and Soriano are on, they are very difficult to stop. That goal was vindication for Orsolini after he hit the bar in the 24th minute. After the goal, Skurupski wasn't terribly busy, but made plays when he needed to. He made an excellent save on Antonio Kendreva in the 55th minute, and then he made an important punch on a dangerous-looking cross in the 80th minute. Finally, 69-year-old Claudio Ranieri was shown a red card for comments he made to match official Livio Marinelli, and because the tunnel's on the opposite side of the dugout at the Stadio Luigi Farias, Ranieri had to take the long walk of shame across the pitch. So that's it for part 2, in part 3 we'll preview our Europa League match against Rijeka. Since the first two parts of this episode were a bit longer, we'll close with just a short preview of our Europa League match on Thursday against Rijeka. Rijeka's most recent match in the Croatian League against Istria was postponed after tests completed on Monday, November 16th revealed that 7 Rijeka players tested positive for COVID. The names of those players who tested positive were not disclosed, which always makes it more difficult to predict their starting 11. Though the match against Napoli was never in doubt, Rijeka were not able to train much because of the spread. Since losing the first meeting with Napoli, Rijeka won their only match against Lokomotiv Zagreb 1-0 napoli has since beaten bologna and lost to milan now on paper this should be an easy win for napoli but right now i don't think any game is a guaranteed win as we saw against azed alkmaar or even in the first half hour of the last match against Rijeka, we don't know who will be in the Rijeka squad but as we saw they have some pacey attackers and as we saw in that match and in the milan match over the weekend we are not very good at defending the counter attack so with that let's get to the starting formations Like I said, with COVID, it's really difficult to know who will be available, so I'll just read out the squad that started against us in the last meeting. Rijeka lined up in a 5-3-2 on paper, but defended in a 5-4-1. Croatia's U21 goalkeeper Ivan Nevestic started in goal. The three center backs were Darko Valkovski, Joao Escoval, and Jorge Smolcic. Ivan Tomasek started at right-back and Filip Braut started at left-back. Adam Nezda Serin played in the midfield with Stepan Lonsar and Robert Mudic. And finally, Luca Menelo moved up to play alongside Sandro Kulenovic in the dual striker role. For Napoli, I'm very curious to see what system Gattuso plays and who he uses in it. The last time we played Rijeka, we lined up in a 4-3-3 with Elif Almas, Diego Demme and Stanislav Lobotka in the midfield, Dries Mertens on the left wing and Andrea Patania at striker. I don't think we'll see that squad again, which was dictated by the availability of players and the burden we had put on our regular starters to that point. After losing to Milan, I think Gatuzo will feel the stronger side to get us back on track, and even though we haven't used the 4-3-3 all that often, I think this is a good opportunity for it. First, I think Alex Meretz will get another start in goal. Davido Spina is still training in the gym, and even if he was healthy, I think Gattuso would want him to play against Roma on the weekend. We don't really have many options at fullback, Husai has COVID and I don't think Fauzi Gulam or Kevin Melqui are going to start anytime soon, even though I'd love to see Melqui get some time. For that reason, I think we'll see Mario Rui at left back and Giovanni Di Lorenzo at right back. Gatsuzo has rotated between Kostas Manolas and Nikola Maximovic, with Maksimovic being the preferred option in the Europa League, alongside Kaladu Koulibaly. The midfield is the hardest part for me to predict. Last season we played with a regista, either Diego Demers, Stanislav Lobotka, and two attacking midfielders in Piotr Zielinski and Fabian Ruiz, but in the last match we lined up in a more traditional 4-3-3 with a center, left, and right midfielder. Timoy e Bakayoko won't play against Roma on the weekend because of the red card he picked up against Milan, so I think we have to use him here just to balance the workload. I also think this is the perfect opportunity to give Zielinski a start to see how much fuel he has in his legs. Unfortunately, that leaves one midfield position to be filled by one of Diego Demes, Stanislav Lobotka, and Fabian Ruiz. While I think it makes sense for either Dem or Lobotka to play, our players are still fairly well rested because of the international break, and Gattuso showed prior to the international break that he will play some players every three days, including Fabian, so I will have him starting next to Zielinski. Up top we should see Lorenzo Insigne on the left, he's another player that seems to play every match despite the injury concerns, and one of Chucky Lozzano and Matteo Politano will start on the right. I think Politano has become the preferred option as the starting right winger which makes me think Gattuso will rest him to play against Roma, but on the other hand Politano has played in every Europa League match to this point so I'm going to give Politano the start. Finally, as striker Victor Osman is still recovering from his shoulder injury, I got it wrong for the Milan match but I'm going to try it again and I'll go back to Andrea Patania for this one. The match official for this one is Turkish referee Halas Oskaya, his linesmen are Ondar Yilmaz and Mehmet Satman and the 4th official will be Alper Ulusoy. For my prediction, I'll give Napoli a comfortable 3-0 win on goals from Insigne, Petania, and Politano. I think a depleted Rijeka side is running into a furious Gattuso that will be looking to get back into the win column ASAP. As we spoke about in part 1, the team mentality remains a major issue, and the best way to snap that is with a win and perhaps with a lopsided win. It will be especially important to get our confidence back up with a huge match coming up against Roma on the weekend. I'm also sure that Gattuso has spent the last couple of days focusing on defending the counter-attack, so even though Rieka looked dangerous on the counter last meeting, I don't think they are going to break through this time. So that's my quick review of Napoli against Rijeka. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore 5 or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. We'll talk to you again later in the week to review this match and to preview the Roma match, but until then, I'm Joe Fisgetti, Napoli sempre.
0: Network.